about knowing when to say, I'm sorry. It's about making the decision to choose what's more important. No, wait. This could wait. It's about doing little acts of kindness, even when no one else is around. Small things, done consistently, end up having the greatest spiritual impact. Well, good morning. Is there anybody else here who is so excited that the weather forecast has an eight in the middle of it, or in the front of it, right? Fantastic. My parents just left to go back to California the day that it stops raining, and so they missed all of the, the, the great stuff. Well, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Brian Steele. I'm a small group pastor here at Christ the King. It's my job, along with Pastor Kevin and Ryan, we get to help people feel like small family in this big, big church, and if you'd like to, uh, to talk to me about that sometime, be glad to do that. Well, um, as Brian said, we're concluding the series about small things. And the big idea of this whole series is this. Small things done over a long period of time create the biggest impact. When we read Jesus' teaching about the kingdom of God, uh, his parables, they fit this theme really well. Matthew 13, Jesus has three parables in particular. He compares his huge kingdom to these small things. He starts with a mustard seed, which is the smallest, it's a tiny little seed, but he says it grows into the biggest tree in the garden. He also compares his kingdom to yeast. It's like leaven and bread, it's practically invisible, but it transforms the whole lump of dough. And then he says that his kingdom, his big kingdom, is like this tiny little pearl kind of hidden away in this clam, all slimed up, but is valuable beyond anything else. But there's something more in these kingdom parables that remain hidden unless we understand a little bit about Jewish culture in the, in the first century. So if you were a Jewish farmer in the first century, you hated mustard plants because it was like this noxious weed Right? You'd be ripping them out. And how many of you have like horsetail in your, right? You know. You know they're so obnoxious you want to rip it out. That was the mustard plant to the Jewish farmer. Yeast in bread was totally unwanted. It was considered like a mold. So remember back to the time where you really wanted a hamburger and there was that bun sitting in your shelf for like three weeks and you finally take it out of the pack and it's a little bit green, it's a little bit blue. It's yeast was not wanted in their bread. And then finally, pearls were considered unclean because they came from clams that were classified as these unclean creatures. So we have a mustard plant that was noxious, yeast that was unwanted, and pearls that were dirty. Paul the Apostle Paul writes a letter to this people in Corinth, and he carries the same theme. And I want you to look at this passage in 1 Corinthians, and we're going to see God chooses 
small things, not only the small things, but the things that are unwanted, that are dirty, that are insignificant, that are cast away. So Paul says this, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. Now, I think that if Jesus was doing his public ministry today, 21st century instead of 1st century, I really believe he would tell a kingdom parable that went something like this. I think he would say, the kingdom of God is like a clown car driven by bozos. You're skeptical, but let me prove to you why I think that would happen. Think about clowns. They're obnoxious, unwanted, a little bit unclean. Does that remind you of anything? And if you're a clown, professionally, I'm so glad that you're here. (laughs) There's always a place for you at Christ the King. But really what he's saying is it's good news. That if you're not tall, brilliant, with rugged good looks, like if you're not Todd King, okay, there's a place for you in the kingdom story. The things and the people that are obnoxious, unwanted, unclean, foolish, weak, the small things, the small people. God is using these people in particular to advance his kingdom. What we're going to do today is we're going to look at the whole story arc of Scripture. I hope you brought your running shoes and some Gatorade and remember those little, those little gummy chew uh, things because we're going to sprint from Genesis to Revelation and look at the story of the kingdom in the Bible. And the whole Bible is about one storyline. It's about the kingdom of God. And what we're going to find is that His kingdom is available and advances through small, discarded people who many consider unclean and weak. So my life verse, I actually consider a type of a clown car, right? Going back to the clowns. They, they, uh, the clowns keep pouring out and out and out of the clown car. Raise your hand, please, if you know what I'm talking about so I'm not the only Okay, you know what a clown car is. This next passage is my life passage is the clown car of Scripture because all of the story of the Bible pours out of this. It's found in Matthew chapter 13. And Jesus says this, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field that a man finds and covers up. And then in his joy goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. And I've brought this box here that actually belongs to my mother-in-law, so I have to take really good care of it. But he's saying the kingdom is like some box that's hidden in the field, dirty, discarded, unnoticed, small, overlooked. But in that box is something that's worth more than everything you have. And I think it's a fair question. If Jesus were here to say uh, today, don't you think it's a fair question to say, like, really, Jesus? Really? What's in that box is worth more than everything that I have. Don't you know I got Seahawks season tickets? Don't you know that? I actually don't, but if I did, like, would you be willing to trade the most treasured thing that you have for what's in this box? And what we're going to do as we go 
through the whole story from Genesis to Revelation is we're going to see what is the kingdom and why is what's in here worth more than everything that you have combined. So I hope you have your running shoes. We're really going to, we're going to make this mad dash. This is going to be fun. Um, part of what's inside this, this treasure box, there's big promises for weak, broken, lost people. There's four major promises that are part of the story arc that we're going to see. The Bible calls these promises covenants, and it's a little different than like in the grade school, right, where the one kid says, hey, I'll trade you your bologna sandwich for my Oreos, right? It's, it's different than that level of agreement. Covenants were tools that one king, a powerful king, would use to advance his kingdom by dealing with somebody who's lesser and less powerful. So covenants in the Bible, they're instruments of a king to advance the kingdom's interest. And there's four big covenants that we're going to see are packed inside this box. The big surprise in the story of Scripture, this one kingdom story from Genesis to Revelation, the big surprise is this. God uses small people over a long period of time to advance his kingdom. Okay, are you ready? I really need you with me now because once we take off, we're going to be going fast. Are you with me right now? Thank you. Excellent. It starts at the beginning in Genesis and with the word, bam, all of creation comes into being. I wanted to know how many stars there are in the universe. So what do I do? I Google it. And Google tells me there's a billion trillion stars in the universe. So with a word, with a word, God creates a billion trillion stars. And that's the beginning of his kingdom. And in that kingdom then on earth, he sets Adam and Eve and he gives them a job he says, I want you to have dominion, which means I want you to rule and reign on my behalf. He's asking Adam and Eve to be under kings. So there's God, creator, king. And he says, Adam and Eve, you're going to be under kings. I want you to steward this and take care of it for me. I want you to manage it on my behalf. He's handing the keys to Adam and Eve of responsibility. Okay. Are there any parents of teenagers in the room? Anybody? Anybody? Do you remember how terrifying that was when you gave your teenager the keys to the car for the first time and you sit in the passenger seat? It's terrifying, right? And God's doing that at the beginning of creation. He's saying, Adam and Eve, I want you to rule and reign on my behalf. I'm giving you the keys. It's kind of a bad idea, right? <laughs> but we do it anyways. Teenagers driving, okay. <laughs> and what happens in this story? There's a rebellion. Adam and Eve, the sin, or what we call the fall, it's more than just, oops, I ate the wrong fruit. What happens is a rebellion against this order of rule and reign. Adam and Eve say, I don't want to be under king, I want to be over king. They rebel. They usurp. And from that, 
with the help of a little snake in the story, is the kingdom of darkness. And now, in the story, there's two competing kingdoms. There's a kingdom of dark, and there's a kingdom of light. And as we go from Genesis to Revelation, we're going to see there's a war and a battle between these two kingdoms of light and dark. But God has a plan to restore his kingdom to all of creation and all of the earth and all peoples, and it starts really small. It starts with this guy in modern-day Iraq. It's a man named Abram, also known, becomes known as Abraham, and God taps the shoulder of Abraham and says, look, I want to make a covenant with you. I want you to leave everything that you have. The city that he was in was called Ur. Ur was a kingdom at the time. It was a flourishing kingdom. God asked Abraham to leave his kingdom to come into another kingdom. Abraham had to sell all. Doesn't it sound like the parable of the hidden treasure? Abraham had to sell all. And so now we come to the first promise that's in here. It's a covenant with Abraham. And God says to Abraham, the whole purpose of this covenant is to promise a place and a population for the kingdom, right? Like, what good is a kingdom if there's no place? Disneyland isn't Disneyland if there's no land, right? doesn't work like that. There has to be a place for the kingdom. And also, it's no good if there's a kingdom, but there's no citizens of that kingdom, if there's no population. So for a kingdom to be real, it needs a place and it needs a people. And the covenant with Abraham establishes these two things. Because he tells Abraham, I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. And he says, I'm going to give you a promised land. So if you hear that phrase, promised land, it's the land of the kingdom. So God's kingdom, though, isn't just Israel, what is known as the promised land, because he says all of the world is going to be blessed. So where is the place of God's kingdom? The whole world, right? Part of it is the promised land, but it's the whole world. It's the place of his kingdom. And I want you to think about this. If we're talking clown car, you tell me if this sounds like a circus, okay? God chose what today would be an Iraqi to establish a family of Israelis. And from that, they're going to bless the whole world. How's that working out? Right? It's kind, of a, it's kind of a recipe for disaster, actually. But what we see, this is part of the kingdom. It's a clown car. It doesn't make sense. It seems foolish and weak. But God uses small people over a long period of time to establish his kingdom. So we're going, we're, we're moving forward in the story now. We're hopping from Genesis now into, Revel, into Exodus. And what happens is this royal family Israel, the kingdom, the king people, get taken captured by Egypt. And they're in slavery in Egypt and this is part of the story, and the story of Exodus is told as a war between two competing kingdoms of light and dark. Egypt is ruled by Pharaoh. He's likely the most powerful king on earth at the time. So what does God do? He taps the shoulder of another guy, and this time his name is Moses. He's stuttering, 
cowardly 80-year-old murderer who was abandoned by his parents, right? Like, shipped down a river. There's nothing special about Moses. He definitely belongs in the clown car. And God uses small people over a long period of time to advance his kingdom. So God working with Moses eventually gets the people free. They leave. It's an exodus from Egypt through the waters, finally into the desert. And what does he do? He establishes a second covenant. This is the second big promise or covenant that's part of the treasure story, the kingdom. Remember, every covenant is specifically used by a king to advance the interest in it of his kingdom. So what does this covenant do? God takes Moses to a mountain, and he gives them a bunch of laws. What are these laws? Go ahead. Just name a few. Go ahead. It, yep, yep, yep. It's don't kill. It's right. don't steal. It's don't sleep with your neighbor's wife. But there's actually more than 10. There's 613 commandments that God gives Moses. It's called the Mosaic Covenant. But the whole context of getting the law on the top of the mountain actually is given at the bottom of the mountain and God says, Moses, I want to make you a kingdom of priests. The purpose of the law is to establish a, a governance of the people in the kingdom. Like, what good is a kingdom without people? What good is a kingdom without land? What good is a kingdom without law, right? So you need a law and a kingdom, and that's what God is doing in the Mosaic Covenant. But like Abraham, remember, Abraham had to leave Ur, the flourishing kingdom. If you know the story, Moses actually grew up in the house of Pharaoh. He lived in the palace of the king, and Moses had to sell all in order to come into God's kingdom. Is it sounding like the treasure hidden in the fields, the selling all? You're going to see this pattern. I saw the head nod. It's good. Good. So, the story goes on. The people get out of slavery, and now they're wandering 40 years in the desert. They're supposed to go to the promised land, but there's rebellion. And they're wandering in the desert. And the time of their wandering, right? Like, every king has a home. What's the name of the king's home? What do you call that? A palace. The palace of God in the Old Testament, as they're in the desert, is known as the tabernacle. Every palace has a throne room. The throne room in the tabernacle is called the holiest of holies, good. And every king sits on the seat. The name of that seat that the king sits on is a, it's a throne. And what's the throne in the tabernacle in the holiest of holies? It's the ark. The ark is a throne. It's called the mercy seat. It's a place where the king sits down. But this is a circus, right? I'm going to keep bringing you back to that. If you think about the circus now, there's this group of people and they set down, they set up the tent and they tear it down and they move it to the next place and they set it up and they tear it down and they're pounding tent pegs and it's not fun work and they're making the rides go and we call those people carnies. Well, God had carnies. He called them Levites. The job of the Levites, they're God's carnies. They're setting up the tent. They're taking it down. They're moving it to another place. It's a circus. It's a kingdom, but it's a kingdom of clowns. <laughs> it's true. 
This is true. <laughs> this kingdom of clowns, then, finally enters the promised land. They cross the river Jordan, and they're finally in the place that's supposed to be their kingdom. But then there's this horrible evil. It's a terrible low point in the story of God's kingdom. Because the king's people, the citizens, what do they do when they get in the promised land? They reject God as king. They say, we don't want you to be a king. We want a king like the other nations. And if you read the text that's found in 1 Samuel 8, I think God was heartbroken. I think he was crushed. He was rejected as king. So God says, okay, you don't want me as king? I'll give you another king. He calls this guy named Saul. He's tall. He's good looking. He's from a great family. Again, think Todd King, but that's not it. His name is Saul. Uh, and to signify that he's the new king in this kingdom, they take some oil and they dump it on his head. And we call that an anointing. He's the anointed one. In Hebrew, in the language of Hebrews, he was Mashiach. He's a Messiah an anointed one. That same word in Greek is he's a Christ. So Saul is the first Christ to rule over this kingdom, an anointed one, a Messiah. He's a Christ. But Saul, this Christ, rebels against God and instead of saying, being the under king, Saul wants to be the over king. So Saul is rejected as king. So God starts again and says, okay, that didn't work. We're going to call another guy. And this time he's picking the runt of the litter. This is the dude who's the youngest of a family. And what's his name? It's David. He's in a shepherd. He's in a, uh, he's a shepherd. He's in a field. He's stinking like sheep and sheep stink. David is definitely in the clown car. But David is anointed. They're like, get the oil again. Okay, we're going to do this again. Anoint him with oil. David is a Messiah. David is a Christ. In many respects, David was foolish and weak and even despicable at some times. He's in the clown car. But God uses small people over a long time to advance his kingdom. And we come now to the third promise that's in uh, part of the story. It's part of the treasure that's in the field. And God makes a covenant with David. And he promises David, one of your descendants is going to sit on the throne for eternity. It's an eternal ruler. And if you're David, you're stoked to find out that some of your descendants, you're gonna, that your descendant is going to be an eternal ruler. You're thinking, bing, bing, two thumbs up. David is going, all right an eternal ruler. But this is a covenant. Remember, covenants, the purpose of it is for a king to advance his agenda. So Abrahamic law or the Abrahamic covenant establishes a people in place. Mosaic covenant establishes a rule. The Davidic covenant establishes a ruler, somebody to sit on the throne. What's God doing in this whole story of scripture? He's doing one thing. He's establishing his kingdom. David, though, like Abraham and Moses, remember they had to leave 
a kingdom to come into God's kingdom. And at one point, David was in the palace of Saul, and he has to leave that. He actually has to flee for his life because King Saul is chucking spears at him. He's running. He leaves the palace of the king. He's hidden in a cave. And there's David. He doesn't have anything. He doesn't have a throne or a palace. He's in a cave. He's a king in a cave. Doesn't he seem like a teeny little seed? And all of the promises of kingdom are wrapped up into that teeny little seed that's hidden in a cave. David eventually comes to his throne and he gets his palace and he gets his kingdom. But then following him is this train wreck of one king who's more evil than the next, who's more evil than the next. It's an evil contest of who can reject God's rule more. The whole family goes into rebellion. So what does God the Father do? He sends his kids, go to your room. It's called the Babylonian exile. He takes them out of Israel. He uses the, the nation of Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar. Go to your room. It's a punishment. It's an exile. Because they've rejected his rule. God wants them to rule here. And they want to be up here. They're rebelling against them. So the royal family is in exile. But it's into this despair and this ruin that God starts speaking to a few prophets and he promises that there's going to be another king that comes. There's going to be another Christ. There will be a Messiah who's going to be a son of David. And he's going to restore the kingdom of God. So that takes us now in the story. We've gone all the way basically through the Old Testament. And we're now at the time between the Testaments, between the Old and New Testament. And there's silence for 400 years, and during this 400-year silence, the king people of God, his people, are first crushed by the Babylonians, and then the Medo-Persians, and then the Greeks come in and trample what wasn't smashed, and then finally the Romans come in and flatten which, which was uh, remaining. It's one kingdom after another, totally ruining God's people. And the people of Israel seem foolish and weak and lowly and despised. It's not just a clown car. It's a clown car that's plowed into a tree. This is tragedy. This is despair. This is hopelessness. And it's into this setting where Rome is basically ruling the world that a baby is born in Bethlehem. His name was Jesus. He was born as the son of David. And he was called Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. And I want you to think about it. I want you to picture this little baby in a manger. And he's like a seed. He's like a pearl. He's practically invisible like leaven. And all of the hopes for all of the kingdom, not just for Israel, but to, for the blessing of the whole world are wrapped up in this tiny little baby. And who is this Christ? This is Christ the King, which I think would be a great name for a church. I don't know. What do you think? Um, anyways, um, but 
he's nobody. He's a podunk rabbi, a carpenter from Nazareth. Nazareth. People thought he was foolish, weak, lowly, even despicable. And even Christ, the king, the anointed one, the Messiah, is small and frail. His public teaching, though, begins with this. The very first thing that he says in his public teaching, he says, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And if you're not reading the Bible through the lens of the kingdom story, you're going to be missing a lot. From Genesis to Revelation, it's a story of one kingdom being established, and Jesus' ministry and public teaching is about that kingdom. He does miracles and signs and wonders to establish his credentials as the Christ, right? There's a jillion people who are going to say, I'm the Messiah, the Christ, or I'm the dude. Just look at our national politics and you'll see it. But he's going, no, I'm, I'm the Christ. And he's doing miracles to prove it. He's doing miracles to prove it. So Jesus is saying he's the king. And remember in the Old Testament, God gives Moses 613 commandments as part of the law, and Jesus gives one new commandment. And he says, love one another as I have loved you. Love one another. And isn't that great that the law of this kingdom is love, that he tells us to love one another as he has loved us. And thank you, Lord, he didn't give us 613 more commandments, right? He gave us one. So what does a king do? King gives commandments. What do kings do? They also establish covenant because Jesus is a king. He's going to have a new covenant because he's a king. And so in his upper room with his best friends, his disciples, on the evening that he was betrayed, he takes bread and says, this is my body given for you. And he takes wine and says, this is my blood of the new covenant. And we're coming now to the fourth covenant that's part of the treasure that's hidden in the field that's telling the story of the kingdom. And Jesus' new covenant is celebrating today's present kingdom. And it's anticipating the future fulfillment of that kingdom. And this is good news. The good news isn't just that Jesus died on the cross, believe in him, your sins are going to be forgiven, you go to heaven. This is the good news. This whole story of all of the kingdom is the good news that Christ is the king. We call it communion. Did you know that every time you take communion and you're taking the bread and you're taking the wine, that you're taking part in a kingdom covenant? Did you know that? I didn't know that until kind of recently. That's why I'm so excited about it. And Jesus is like Abraham and Moses and David, and they had to leave their kingdom. And Jesus had to leave the throne room of heaven. He sells everything so he can acquire a treasure. And were that treasure, he sold all. He left a kingdom. So he can acquire a kingdom. As the story goes in the end of the Gospels, you read that the king is killed. And he's put on a cross. And the inscription above his head on the cross 
It's the crime that he was accused of. He was accused of insurrection against Caesar. He says, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. He's killed as an insurrectionist. And this, I find this really fascinating. So the cross was an instrument of torture used by Rome in order to squish rebellions. The people who were rebelling against Rome were publicly humiliated and killed in the most brutal way so the rebellion could be squashed. And God uses this same cross to squash the rebellion of the kingdom of darkness. Isn't that interesting? Super interesting. The king is buried. He's put in a cave, his lifeless body. He's like David, who was a king in the cave. And there's Jesus in the grave. His dead, lifeless body is there. And he must have seemed like a tiny little seed. All of the hopes of the kingdom were wrapped up in that little cave, like a pearl inside of a clam. But we know the king didn't stay there. Jesus was resurrected. He comes back to life. It's the beginning of new creation. It's the announcement that his rule and reign is true and it's here right now. And if there's one thing you take away, this kingdom stuff isn't just a symbol. It's real. God's kingdom is a real, actual kingdom here and now. And because he's a king, like what do kings do? They tell people to do stuff. They commission him, people to do stuff. So Jesus, because he's a king, he gives a great commission. And he says his great commission is go into all the world and make disciples. So cool. The end of his ministry, Jesus only has about 120 disciples. If we were grading him in today's standard for professional ministry, we'd probably give him like a C minus, maybe a D plus. Like, come on, God, you're making disciples and the best you can do is 120? Kind of weak, right? It's not a great ministry result. It's kind of weak. But from those 120 disciples going, making disciples, who make disciples, who make disciples today, Google tells me there's about hundred or there's about two billion people on earth who carry the name of Christ. From those few weak, small, despised disciples, and they were all in the clown car. They were radicals and rejects of the of the religious order, and God uses people like that for His kingdom. The king then gets enthroned. Finally, Jesus, he, he leaves earth, he ascends, he, uh, he sits next to his father, he's enthroned, and he gets a crown, and the day in which he receives that crown, we call Pentecost, and we think that Pentecost is mostly about the Holy Spirit, but it's not. It's about Jesus receiving his crown, and he gives a coronation gift to his people, and that coronation gift is the Holy Spirit. So now we're living in these days of the already not yet. His kingdom is here, but not yet fully here. There's this war between the kingdom of light and death, or light and dark, and that war is happening inside our hearts right now. It's happening inside my heart. It's a war between the competing kingdoms. 
And we've come to the end now. We've gone from Genesis, and now we're finally at Revelation, and we're at the end of the book. And if you read Revelation, please read it as a kingdom story. In fact, there's one verse that captures the whole story of the Bible. It's in Revelation 11:15. It's the summary of the big story of Scripture. And this is what Genesis or what Revelation is about. It's this: the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of His Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. And that's the story. At the end of the day, the kingdom of darkness is going to be finally squashed. There's not going to be competing kingdoms anymore. We're not going to have to fight against death and disease and sickness and the things that we hate that we do even though we know we shouldn't. It's going to be done. There's going to be one kingdom and one rule and reign. So we're going to wrap all of this up by coming back to this box. He says, the kingdom is like a treasure hidden in the field. And what's in this box? <laughs> Let's take a look at Daniel. This is our last passage. The question is, what do you receive if you sell all to acquire this small treasure box? And the answer is everything. You receive everything. And Daniel says this, the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. That's all of the kingdoms. It all is fit in there. That's why this parable is a clown car. All of the blessings of all the treasures of all of the kingdoms under all the earth, right? You see what I'm saying? Shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. So what God is saying is, would you give me everything so that I can give you everything? And that's a good deal. But God himself is in here. <laughs> it's not just he wants to give you a bunch of stuff. He wants to enter into a loving relationship with you. He wants you to know him for eternity. He wants you to spend an eternity of knowing and loving him. And that's the treasure hidden in the field. Would you pray with me, please? Father, I thank you that, um, that you're a good, good father. That there's not one single person in this room, you don't fully know their story. And even if some people would say they're low or despised or rejects for a million reasons, it's you that wants to use them to advance your kingdom. You deeply love us. Father, I thank you that you sold everything. You gave up your own son. You paid the highest price so that you could acquire us like a treasure hidden in the field. Thank you, Lord Jesus. I'm asking that people would take one step closer to you today, would bow their knee to you and call you this day king. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.